this is just a short visit if you guys want to come back again maybe um third week of october before the snow really comes in that i could do that again take my time okay yeah because okay. for teachings to happen it's four seasons in a year can i just take a quick picture of you guys too what, what's your name ken okay you're listening to undercurrents my name is ken ogasawara and I'm part of the Community Engagement Team at Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. Undercurrents is one way to tell the rich stories coming from our community of partners, program participants, staff, and others. Undercurrents is brought to you by Kindred Credit Union. Kindred's purpose is cooperative banking that connects values and faith with finances, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. Kindred is committed to learning, building partnerships, and mobilizing their resources to make tangible progress towards reconciliation. This episode is about the lay of the land. First of all, I'm not that good with English. I just, I have enough English just to get by type of thing. I'm not going to try to be all professional and fancy and stuff like that. This is Colleen Hukuma, and she has something much more powerful and rare than fancy English. She's fluent in her native tongue, Omishkago Cree. For me to tell you guys my story, it would take up to a year. So this is just the point form, main idea. Colleen is instantly likable, friendly, talkative, and welcoming. And as we'll soon hear, her language is just the beginning of her deepening connection to traditional knowledge and skills. I came from Northern Ontario, Holly Lake. It's way past Pewanic area. It's called Sudden Lake. The uh, Chukamolans and hunters um, and other families from the past that uh, lived there four generations and four generations. I'm visiting Colleen with Lindsay Mullins-Kuna and Claire Wheaton from MCC's Indigenous Neighbours Program. And we're just outside of Cochrane, Ontario, about 100 kilometers north of Timmins, where MCC's northern office is, and 800 kilometers due north from my home in Kitchener. We're winding our way down dirt country roads, passing farm fields and forests. This is uh, my aunt's and uncle's farm. It's not mine, it's theirs. And I'm just leasing over here the land. And now the other side, keep on going that way. You can't see it from here. We, we have about 5,000 pounds of potatoes growing right now. 5,000? Yes. Wow. And is some of that from the, the gardening seed that the Mennonite Central Committee Yes, yes, yeah, that's part of there. Uh-huh. I, I made the markings. Your potatoes are on this side at the edge. Uh-huh. Yeah, and last time our potatoes were this big. I'm so glad it worked out. Yes. Lindsay and Colleen are referring to a community gardening bundle that Colleen received from MCC. Everything here is no chemicals. Each of these bundles contains everything you need to start a large garden, including four shovels, four hand cultivators, 30 pairs of gardening gloves, and climate and soil appropriate vegetable seeds, including 500 pounds of potato seeds, which Colleen has clearly seen success with. This is part of an MCC project called Sowing Reconciliation, which is now in its sixth season. These bundles have been sent at the request of these communities. Their goal is to grow gardeners and to help folks get excited about kickstarting their own community gardens. This could be a strawberry field. Again, the fertilization right there is on top, the natural flowers, of course. Colleen is passionate about growing and harvesting food, 
And over the course of this episode, Colleen will lead us on a tour of both the physical lay of the land she works on and some of the issues related to the landscape of indigenous food sovereignty. But what is food sovereignty anyway? For the purposes of this episode, we can think of it as communities choosing how to manage and interact with their food systems on their own terms. This includes all the land, water, plants, and animals involved. Tell my uncle and auntie, thank you. They helped us a lot, and we helped them. We worked together. Actually, that's what works. Uh-huh. So there's more land that way, heading that way. Do you see? Yeah. For me to go that way, not take a chance. I've been stuck already twice going that way. No, been stuck everywhere, actually. Colleen rents five acres from her aunt and uncle, along with some friends and family. Colleen has started with planting potatoes, with plans to expand the crop variety as they learn more. As we drive through the property, I can see a number of buildings. The main farmhouse, a barn, sheds, and all of this surrounded by bush. It's peaceful, maybe even lonely in the fall after the hustle of harvest time. But we drive past all of these as we reach our final destination. That's the trees and here's the teepee. My family made it. Uh, my oldest son too, like my boys got to see when we made this. That's my uncle helped out. That was made by, um, he, he cut his own wood here. We got the wood from here. Wow. Hardly from the store. We try to preserve the trees as much as we can. Like trees are our friends. Treat the trees like your ancestors. So we don't hurt the trees. We try not to disturb the land as much as we can. The teepee is about 16 feet high, held up with about eight long poles cut from the surrounding bush. It's covered with a white tarp, and the interior is about 10 feet across. Colleen holds back the flap to welcome us inside. Um, I forgot to tell you guys, they guys have uh, boots on. So it's kind of messy in here. This here needs a bit of a cleanup because people stayed here and we got so busy but then again we try our best that uh, i need i need to be this fixed up for next time given that i was on a tight budget right so this is the for example let's we did 30 geese here they're all hanging like this 30 geese smoked that's what these are used for this is beautiful i could just smell the fire yeah <laughs> like as i sit here pretend in the center of the teepee is a fire pit. Set over this fire pit is a wooden rack with four foot long blackened sticks about as thick as a hockey stick laying across the rack. These are the sticks over which the meat is draped as a slow burning fire below produces this life-giving smoke. They're lined up like this. Even we could use these for the fish too, but unfortunately I didn't have that much help this summer. Yeah. I wanted to go fishing again. Well, my cousin did show me again, but we didn't, I didn't have enough help. Yeah. So we take the wood, go like this, line them all up. Whoops, watch, watch your face. We did bang our heads a few times in here. So we line them all up. Uh, they're gonna be, they're dark, they're dirty, but they're all right. So for example, we go like this. Then once we cut up the geese, which my cousin was showing me, cut up the geese, we hang them up like a flap. Then the firewood, it's not the regular wood, it's not the, chop up tree not not like that we use these kind of firewood the old dead trees see how like that is sort of like driftwood eh? yeah like, like it looks heavy but it's not see it's really light so that's the kind of firewood we use for the 
for smoking foods. It's not regular wood. You're smoking the food at a at a slow pace. It's not like oh big bonfire. Um, just we lay it flat like this the firewood. So it's just smoky, like slowly, the flavor. And then how, yes. how long would it take to to smoke one kind of rack here? Um, it all depends. Like some people do it all day. Some people four hours. Some people do it two days, depending on the temperatures too. All of this talk of smoking meat leads to the question of why. Why do all of this work of hunting and preparing and smoking what is called country food when food can be bought at the grocery store? Okay, the food, there's a big difference at the store. I still buy it anyways because how do I know if it's been, has steroids? How do I know that? How do I know if the cow meat or any kind of meat, even the, f I don't know about the fish, but you know, how do I know if it's been injected with stuff to make them more bigger and fattier and juicier? We, I don't know that, we don't know that. So I rather prefer the moose and the fish if I get it. Colleen is not alone in preferring country food to store-bought meat. We'll take a brief detour to hear from Bill Lutet. Bill snared his first rabbit when he was five years old and over the next 75 years, Bill fed his family and community with meat harvested off the land. Here's Bill describing his upbringing in Lake River, about 150 kilometers north of Ottawapiskat. Anyway, Lake River was a place where we spent the winter and the, and the springs and the fall when we were there. Uh, I never known of a time where uh, food would be scarce. Uh, there were rabbits, ptarmigans, sharp-tailed grouse, spruce grouse. Carbu, moose, everything uh, you needed to to heat was outside the door. Bill also talked about how in his later years, his doctor advised him to cut back on greasy food to remedy some health problems. But Bill found that not all grease is created equal. The funny part about that is uh, the spring goose, Canada goose, and the snow geese, they migrate from the south where they were living off. Uh, wheat fields, uh, cornfields, and what have you, to fatten up. Then you come north again in the spring, and they're like a quarter inch of uh, fat under the skin. <clears throat> when I heat the, the geese, it seems to be a difference. I don't, I don't have any problems, no matter how much I heat. But if I call Kentucky Fried Chicken to send over a dinner for two or three, uh, it's almost like they get sick right away. <laughs> The geese don't bother me at all. But I have to be really careful. So if I'm not going to live off the land, I've got to be careful of what I eat when I go shopping, what I buy. So i like to say thank you to the hunters. Yeah, to the men and some women too. Um, so I am trying to hunt myself too because... Um, there comes upon a time when they're all busy, mm -hmm. they can't be available, so you gotta be your own um, own person to get your own food type of thing. Another reason this is so important is the infamously high cost of groceries in the North. If you think your grocery bill has ballooned over the last year, take that number and triple it for remote North and First Nations communities. If you can't pay $22 for a four pack of sweet peppers, the cheaper alternatives are highly processed foods packed with sugar and salt. This has led to predictable health issues across many First Nations who cannot afford healthy food 
through the conventional retail food system and have lost the knowledge or land access to harvest food in traditional ways. So we could come here again sometime October, third week. After I go, we go moose hunting. I'm going moose hunting with my son. So he's gonna shoot the moose and my friend's taking me and my other cousin's coming. Yeah. So it's really important to get all the fresh food. And we don't hunt in the city, obviously. We're not, we're not gonna get in a moose that's been living in Timmins for like two years. Like we, we go on the outskirts, far, far away. And if you ask me her, I don't know. <laughs> My cousin knows how to hunt her, but me, it's just that somewhere I got uh, left the, the bush life, that's what happened. So I'm trying to get it back today. Not to say I know everything to either, again. This is a common theme among many Indigenous peoples, having left the bush life, as Colleen calls it. Many have migrated to urban centers for economic and educational opportunities. Others have been separated from their traditional knowledge by more explicit government policies. This is Bill Lutet again. In your formative years, you needed to uh, have a person that you look up to. That was kind of interrupted by, uh, not only in my case, but a lot of other people, other people my age at the time, it's uh, residential school. That uh, interrupted the uh, skills that uh, you needed to in order for you to survive out on the land. Since the beginning of Canada as a colonial entity, the government has used its power and policies to eliminate the traditional teachings and cultures of Indigenous nations across this land. Residential schools was one notorious way to accomplish this. Another was the reserve system, which essentially restricted many Indigenous communities to bounded parcels of land severely hampering access to land, and thus eroding any chance of food sovereignty. Colonial systems are not just a thing of the past either. They continue to impact Indigenous people every day. Indigenous writer Sarah Augustine said, and I quote, Systems are created by someone for someone. They most often serve the interests of the group that formed them. Colleen has lived this reality for years in trying to get government funding for her food and community growing projects. I've been trying those guys for years now. I've been trying like 10 years. They don't want to listen. It's like, what's going on? This is the real stuff. And yeah. oh, it's all about money, money, money. I mean, the government doesn't really uh, pay attention to people like me. Um, I've been an advocate for about how many years now? 20, 19 years. So I started from the bottom just by myself, with ideas and visions. But I couldn't seem to pull through because with, uh, society is too much of uh, a big gap in there. Something's wrong. Favoritism, money, we're all separated now. That's the way the government sets it up. He has a circle for us to keep on coming back and rely on him. Does that make sense? Chasing him around. But not me. I, I decide to do my own thing and not wait for him and take my own leadership. And not everybody was happy about that, I'll tell you that. Not everybody. I met some people along the way. I became reluctant after of who to trust because of what I'd gone through. I met all the people that tried to stop me, but I'm like, no, can't do this. This is me and I got to do this. So that's where I am at. Colleen's self-determination is not only admirable, in many ways it's necessary. 
For as many times as indigenous ideas have been ignored, well-meaning settlers have tried to impose their ways onto indigenous peoples. We settlers who think we know better and don't value the lived experience of those they are trying to help. Colleen has definitely come across these folks. I've met people that say they know culture, but they don't know that I'm the one, not to, not to be rude, but I'm the one who's coming from the north and um, I, I, I know right away if they know what they're talking about. And if they don't, ah, they're just, they just heard it from a university book or either something else like that. That's what I know. Indigenous food sovereignty has to be led by Indigenous people. It can't be drafted in an ivory tower or legislated in Ottawa to be implemented by bureaucrats. Nutrition North Canada is a classic example of this. Remember the absurdly high cost of groceries I mentioned earlier? Nutrition North is a federal program whose sole purpose is to make food more affordable for Indigenous people in the North. But because the program is designed to subsidize retail stores, the majority of the money goes to companies like the Northwest Company a colonial corporation that was rivaling the Hudson Bay Company in the fur trade 200 years ago, and today has a near monopoly on grocery store outlets across the North. And when you see a $166 bag of dog food or a $27 jug of orange juice, many wonder whether these subsidies are making any measurable difference. Meanwhile, communities and individuals like Colleen, who are trying to produce their own food, are not even a part of the conversation. This is why growing and hunting food is so important to Colleen. It's taking back an essential choice, the choice and ability to feed oneself and community. Up north, we're trying to come back slowly how it was a long time ago. And you gotta have, you gotta be strong. Yeah, strong, like physically strong. That's why it's important to move and try to hurry up. That's where the muscles come from. I feel them now talk about how you respect the animal, thank the animal um, after, after you catch that animal. I pray in my mind. I, don't, I pray uh, quietly, secretly say thank you. Mingwesh. Mingwesh ome kipiche minin michem kichapamatasya. Yuchimichis nano. Me or you can say that mingwesh owa owa we ashishka gibichashamogyan. Yuchimichisya. Creator, our creator. Mingwesh. And make it so, the ego. Ego we give thanks to. And um, our ancestors. Like or spirit world, like heavens, our ancestors, we thank them. For Colleen, giving thanks to Creator for the animal that gave its life for them also includes ensuring that nothing is wasted. Even the bits that she can't use are food for other wildlife. So that way the wolves could eat it? The bear? Does that make sense? So they'll eat it, they'll have food to eat. And the bones, they could chew on them, and it's a healthy food for them. This consideration extends even to creatures she'd rather not think about. The flies could eat, everybody could eat. And maggots are supposed to be good for you and healthy because they preserve the land and the earth. Mm-hmm. Maggots are disgusting. I can't stand them to myself, but, but still, it's like they're the savers of our soils, those yeah. maggots. Yeah. I see them the other, yesterday. I'm like, like <laughs> I, uh, but I had to face it. Face it. These are maggots. They're, they're here for a reason. 
Colleen has a lot on her plate, so to speak. She's studying social services at First Nations Technical Institute, in addition to all of her food production work. She also makes clear that she values learning through her own experiences in community leadership. But there is one reason that has kept her going through it all. A reason that not only sows seeds for a better future, but also defies the legacy of colonialism. My boys, like that's, they're the reasons why uh, we pull through a lot of stuff. They're young, they're healthy, they're strong. And I had to teach them though first all the time about safety, all the time. Excellent. They're the ones that keep me going actually. That's why I'm doing everything I do for them. It's for them and my, um, my nephews, nieces, of course, the youth, you know, there's a reason why for everything I do. I had a vision over here, but that's impossible. I was gonna take years. I was gonna make a kitchen over here and have a feast where people come together. Yeah. Or I was gonna make a dance too, where people like love to dance. I love to dance. I like to sing just for fun because we're Sometimes you all get stressed out too much. We need to have fun. Like how many times a month do we laugh? Is it once a month now? Mm -hmm. Like how many times <laughs> do we laugh? No. Wynonna Leduc, the legendary Anishinaabekwe activist, environmentalist, economist, and writer, has stated, and I quote, the recovery of the people is tied to the recovery of food, since food itself is medicine, not only for the body, but for the soul, for the spiritual connection to history, ancestors, and the land. For Colleen and Bill, and the growing number of communities who are taking their food systems back into their own hands, this rings true. Recovery of the people is tied to the recovery of food. Every goose smoked on the rack, every potato pulled from the earth, and every berry picked from the bush is an act of defiance and hope. Defiance against the odds still stacked against them, and hope for a more abundant future harvest. If you'd like to use this episode as a discussion tool for your classroom or church or community group, check out the show notes for a link to a discussion package that will help focus that conversation and provide additional resources. I'd like to say miigwech to Colleen Hukuma for hosting us on the land and for sharing your story and dreams with us. Miigwech as well to Bill Lutit for his wisdom from decades of lived experience. Thanks to my colleagues, Lindsay Mullins-Kuna and Clara Wheaton who continue to nurture and grow fruitful relationships in the North. A big thanks, as always, to Kindred Credit Union for their steadfast support of Undercurrents. This episode was produced with help from Kristen Kong, sound mix by Francois Goudreau, original and theme music by Brian McMillan, and cover art by Jesse Bergen. And thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode coming out in August. My name is Ken Ogasawara. Have a great rest of your day.